Hey guys, thanks for joining me for this 15th episode in Season 2 of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. Special guests for this episode include Richard The Rev Hartley. We'll be talking about the new series on USA, The Rev. Ari Melber will be in talking about special coverage of upcoming impeachment along with other MSNBC programming. We'll also talk with legendary rock guitarist Steve Hackett. Got a new acoustic album, Under a Mediterranean Sky, available now. We'll also visit with New York Times financial writer Ron Lieber. Got a brand new book, The Price You Pay for College. And our final guest will be country singer and songwriter Dave Herrera. Has a brand new single that drops tomorrow. If you would, please take the time to subscribe, drop a like, comment, leave some feedback, and of course, share with your friends. Our first guest is Richard The Rev Hartley. We'll be talking about his new show, The Rev, on USA TV. First off, Rev, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Cameron. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. Now, 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 Rev, tell us where the uh, the, the the idea for the show was uh, was first pitched to you, and your and your original thoughts with the uh, with the opportunity for the show, if you will. Okay. Well, you know, this came sort of organically. I was just doing what I do, teaching choirs, traveling around the world, and teaching my church choirs because they can't sing, Cameron. And I was teaching them. No, they they they, they can't sing. Their ears are in their feet. And a, a friend of mine says, you know, I should take your choir rehearsal because this is crazy. I said, come on, so take the choir rehearsal. So he came with his little Kodak camera, and he filmed me, and I'm yelling, I'm screaming, I'm having a fit. I'm throwing books and paper cups because these people are blind in their ears. And he says, this is so funny. Yet I'm having fun with them because we, we just have fun doing it. You know, it's not abusive, but it's really funny. So he sends the tape to a friend of his, and he's laughing. He sends the tape to another guy. They know an agent. They send it to a Hollywood production company, and now I'm talking to Cameron. <laughs> Boy, it, it it it's amazing how things how doors open up, isn't it, Rev? Yeah, it was just really a divine order thing. You know, we didn't do any auditions, didn't send out any eight by ten glossies, didn't have to deal with the purple couch. You know, we we didn't do any of that. <laughs> we was just doing what we were doing. And it just came, you know, really an authentic move. And here we are. And um, we had a lot of interest in networks in, in California. And USA was the best fit. And they've been great partners. And the show was already airing. Now, now, Rev, what was what was your first? He- was there any hesitation about about the idea of the show? Anything that you were kind of like, ah, I'm not real sure. Well, you know, Cameron, no, because my whole family, my church, it's a show with our cameras anyway. We might as well let the world see it. I mean. You know, we've been, it is, we've been traveling around for 30 years to Europe, Japan. We've been to Japan about 100, seriously, about 150 times. Japan, Australia, Africa. The church is like a um, a mecca of Bohemian-type people, artists, and uh, listen, and it was just like that. So I said, well, we have this opportunity to show the world our uniqueness because for some reason they think I'm over the top and eccentric. I don't get that, (laughs) but but that's what they, I've been told, you know, I don't get it, but I've been told. And so the whole family, their performance, my wife is a singer and a nurse. My daughter is a professional college student and a singer. She has three degrees. She just applied for a PhD. She doesn't have a job or money. And my son 
is a 24-hour musician. His concerts start at 5 o'clock in the morning. He's the only one in the concert. And they like that. So I said, well, listen, now God wants to hope the world to see my struggle, what I've been putting up with. And so here we are. And and for you, the uh, the the life you've lived, you've you've traveled, you've uh, been on award shows, you've been on some of the biggest stages uh, around the world. To bring that down to to the the local congregational choir, for you, it, it, is that what kind of builds the frustration, if you will? Listen, I am crashing and burning. It's like you know, <laughs> you go from Shaka Khan to Shaka Khan. So it's a it's really comical to see me so frustrated because I'm serious about the music. You know, you go from Aretha Franklin and Diana Ross and all type Kelly Price and Mariah Carey, you know, and even professional choirs around the world. And now I'm dealing with the yokel locals. You know what I'm saying? Uh, they don't even know who Patti LaBelle is. They know what Taco Bell is. I'm dealing with that. I, I and I understand. I I have dealt with the with the, uh, the the local choirs as well, and I know the you're you're lucky if you can find uh, a, a couple that can even read any notes, right? Read read a note. They can't listen. They could read a note. <laughs> they can't read a note. They don't even hear a note. But you know, it's all about faith, and you know, they're the best group of people. And then, you know, you have the, the family dynamic because my son is a musician and my daughter and my wife, they can carry a tune. I mean, if you put it in the FedEx envelope, they can carry it. You know what I'm saying? So we, we're, we're working all together and having a great time doing it. That's awesome. Again, uh, The Rev, Thursday nights on USA Network. And uh, Richard, I want to make sure and, and let our listeners know where to keep up with not only everything around the show, but everything you've got going social media wise as well. Oh, now, see, Cameron, now this is what they tell me. They tell me I have these accounts and I'm supposed to hashtag something. Like, I'm old. I'm AARP. I don't know about hashtagging and ticking and talking and tweeting. They say I have it. So I think if you do something at the Rev USA, I'll come up. And better yet, if you just hashtag Richard Hartley, everything that's happening will come up. There you go. Well, Richard, the Rev Hartley, it's been great to visit with you this morning, sir. I appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule, and hopefully we can catch up again real soon. That'll be great. Thank you, Brother Cameron. I appreciate you. Up next is our good friend Ari Melber. We'll be talking about special coverage on MSNBC of the upcoming impeachment of Donald Trump. First off, Ari, always great to visit with you, sir. Great to be with you, Cameron. And uh, obviously the impeachment coverage coming up. And, and first off, I wanted to get your thoughts. Uh, what is the what is the consensus that you're hearing back about uh, the impeachment proceedings that are that are about to take place? I think there's a larger number of people in Congress who think this is important as compared to the last one on Ukraine, which was really divided on partisan lines. Number two, we're already seeing a lot of Republican senators uh, really step up and find ways to push against it, not necessarily trying to associate themselves or defend what what happened uh, at the Capitol or even what the, the former president said, but finding other arguments against it, mostly on process. And what do you think uh, the 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 average American? I mean, we hear obviously on Facebook, social media, and everything like that. The 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 question about the impeachment against a uh, a, a regular normal citizen, and, and and what do you say to that that argument side of it? Well, whether people like that idea or not, there is what 
the lawyers call precedent for it. It's happened before. It's doable. Uh, now, that doesn't mean you have to do it, of course. Uh, but the bottom line is this is an individual who was impeached while he was president, basically, for those actions. Uh, then you have a debate over whether that's the right thing to do or not. And the trial, which is really a matter of scheduling, right, has now been scheduled um, for after he happened to leave office. Um, but impeachment's not just for presidents. The Constitution was basically set up by the founders to have these special and extreme measures to deal with potential abuses by people in federal office, uh, judges, for example, uh, cabinet secretaries. And so there have been situations in the past where we've already seen former officials have their trial out of office. And indeed, if you think about it logically, the last point I would make is whatever one thinks about Donald Trump and whether you like this idea or not, we could all come up with an example where you needed to do something urgently and you did it in the government, and then later you dealt with the trial or the aftermath. Uh, indeed, the federal government, uh, when big things happen, needs to to move fast. Now, the uh, as the trial moves forward, what are what are some of the the key points or or observ- observations that you think folks really need to keep their eyes and their minds uh, really locked in on? Well, it's a great question because this is really different than most impeachment issues and really most trials in general. And here's why. The insurrection, the attack on the Capitol, that happened. Uh, People saw it. I think everybody knows that. I think you have to be far down a rabbit hole to not have seen and understood that. And it was a bad thing. So the only question left is, from the Senate's perspective, do they think that former President Trump literally and intentionally caused that or not? And you can answer that question off the top of your head with what you think. Right, and people can come to those answers, and that's fine. Um, but our system demands more than that, which is an actual look at the evidence. Uh, and I think people have to be open-minded to it. So if, if you have a certain view of it, but we showed through the government, they showed evidence that really, really made you question your view either way, in a trial you want to be open to that. And very quick example, if you don't think he caused it, but then they found a recording uh, where in advance he said, oh, I really want to make sure they actually storm the doors and and threaten the officials and yada, yada. You might be like, oh, sounds like that was a goal. And conversely, if you found evidence going the other way that said him, showed him in a meeting saying, look, we can rile people up. One thing I don't want, we just don't want any violence here. And let me reiterate that. And new evidence came to light. Again, I don't mean to sound overly optimistic, (laughs) but trials are supposed to work on evidence, not opinion. That that is right, and uh, and Ari, how much do you think that uh, the emotions this last year and and some of the uh, the the infighting between both sides? How much do you think the uh, the the emotions have been caused by the pandemic, the frustrations of everything else going on? Do you think that is what has caused? It just seems like everything to reach a, a boiling point of late. It's a great question. I think people know in their everyday lives it's been an accelerant. It's made things way more intense. And so, you know, as a journalist, I don't know exactly what percent of all this is more intense because of it, but I bet it's above zero um, in the same way that we're living our lives and you might find yourself, you know, in a debate in the grocery line or outside a 
outside a convenience store about masks or this or that, and it, and it gets more intense more quickly than it might have a couple of years ago, above and beyond everything else we're dealing with. And there you go. Now, Ari, I, what, one of my favorite questions as we get into the new year is, what uh, what was your biggest, uh, your most pandemic or COVID-19 purchase of 2020? Oof. Probably a lot more headphones, because I lose them anyway. And it's like... I was taking more walks and hikes and doing extra stuff, and then it was like, I need that for whatever I'm listening to. I need that. That's good stuff. Now, again, special impeachment coverage on MSNBC. Ari, I want to make sure not only to let folks know where they can keep up with uh, with everything there, but also everything you've got going social media-wise as well, my friend. Yeah, people can always find me uh, on the beat nightly on MSNBC. That's 6 p.m. Eastern. And on social media, I'm at Ari Melber, A-R-I-M-E-L-B-E-R, and I, I engage with people, and I love hearing from people all over the country, including out, out in your neck of the woods. Well, Ari, it is always great to visit with you, sir. I appreciate you getting up extra early this morning to be on, and uh, hopefully have a great rest of your week, and looking forward to continuing coverage, my friend. You bet. Thank you, Cam. Up next, rock guitarist Steve Hackett got a new acoustic album we'll be talking about under a Mediterranean sky. We love getting the chance to visit with some of the legends, and uh, we've got one of my favorites, Steve Hackett, back on the line today. And first off, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you, Cameron. Nice to talk, mate. And uh, got a, a brand new album to talk about, uh, Under a Mediterranean Sky. And, and Steve, in what 2020 was, uh, uh, this was, was, was this what the inspiration all led to for you in uh, during the pandemic times? Uh, well, yeah. You know, we had uh, 60 canceled shows, 6-0. And um, I had plenty of downtime. So we finished off a live album. We released that. Uh, Stephen Wilson did a surround of that. Um, I got out the the, uh, the autobiography, a Genesis on my bed, and I thought this year I might do, do two studio albums, uh, one of which is rock I'm still working on, uh, but then there was Under a Mediterranean Sky, the idea of doing something that was orchestral and acoustic and uh, featured many instruments, mainly from around the, uh, the Mediterranean, and try and do... Um, landscapes of these places in the, in, the, in, the, in the musical sense of the word. So we have one track that's typically Spanish, which is Andalusian Heart, um, another track that might be uh, seen as typically Greek, which is um, the uh, the memory of myth, and a French track, Joie de Vivre, um, uh, and the, the, the dervish in the gym, which is a really... Um, uh, it's a Turkish-inspired track, so um, all those places we we get to visit. It's a kind of the album is a kind of window on the world that overlook from the balustrades looking onto the uh, the Mediterranean Sea, um, and of course the sky of, of, of the, uh, the Mediterranean. It's a kind of in- invitation to to travel, the art of dreaming to those places. So I, I've tried to describe in as much as possible how much the Mediterranean has meant to me and, and to my wife when we've been in extraordinary places like Egypt and traveled up the Nile extensively and been to Petra and, uh, in Jordan and, and done all those things that Indiana Jones gets to do 
movies, but to experience it firsthand. Yeah. Now, working with uh, an acoustic project on this, and uh, and also, like you said, melding all of the the the, the different uh, environments that you're that you're talking about. I mean, how much does this show to the evolution of you as a as an artist and a musician as well? Well, um, I'm I'm not entirely alone on this one. You know, there's an orchestra's worth of collaborators. Uh, and that makes a huge difference as well when you've got all those people who are such great virtuosos, like, uh, for instance, um, Arsene Petrosian from um, Armenia playing the Duduk and Malik Mansurov playing guitar from uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, those two guys are on the same track, the Turkish track, but uh, the, the, their two nations were at war together uh, whilst that track was being put together. Um, and that's not the first time I've worked with people who've been, all their countries have been sworn enemies, you know. Um, I, on one of my rock albums, there was uh, one Israeli and one Palestinian working together. So there are people who are trying to heal the divide and put together what politicians would put asunder. So what, whatever politics fails to do, art and music often manages to pull off because... Uh, it's great when everyone ends up singing the same tune or playing the same track, at least. And Steve, you've been—you've uh, seen the divides uh, politically and uh, socially across the world, and, and you've also seen, obviously, how much music can do to to, to soothe the soul and to for this. To, to, to be a soothing in 2021, uh, how how proud are you of the project and also the feedback that you've been getting? Well, uh, in terms of the feedback, it's just gone into the uh, the UK top ten, uh, the national charts here. It's currently at number seven, um, and um, it's been very very well received. I, I think uh, I think people have, have liked the idea that when you can't even go out, out of your front door without possibly getting infected and it could be fatal, um, to have a window on the world with the kind of album that, that, that I've been doing. Um, yeah, and again, it was the suggestion of my wife, Jo, who said you could make this album much more broad than just the influence of Baroque music or, or siesta-style stuff and flamenco and all that, but you know, have so much more, you know, have the Middle Eastern influence and um, the orchestral thing and um, uh, Concerto de Aranwes, you know, made popular by Miles Davis as Sketches of Spain. Um, and so all those influences come to bear on it. So I like to think it must be timely or else it wouldn't be taking off quite in the way that I didn't expect it. I thought we've got a, a Cinderella album here and it wasn't going to get to go to the ball. We weren't going to be able to play live shows we, we can't do that but but i've done stuff you know to camera and i've been playing and doing uh, track chats and various things we did 60 of those i thought if i can't be with people then at least the music can and on the website there are videos uh, of playing the stuff or at least certainly miming along to it um uh so hackitsongs.com is the is the website so people can see what i've been up to and not just recently but uh, previous years as well, so I'm gabbling away here like crazy. But it, it's been a, it, it's been a, a, um, this lockdown. There's two ways of looking at it: thinking, oh, I can't do all my favourite things. On the other hand, you know, you could do all those things you intended to do. Like, for instance, you wanted to paint a picture. This is a good time to do it, or write that play, or write a book, or write a song, or whatever it is that you, you wouldn't normally do. Um, 
why not? Because you've got all that extra time, and uh, uh, you might as well just enjoy yourself. That is right. And again, the uh, the, the new album, Under a uh, the Mediterranean Sky, sorry about that, uh, Steve Hackett. And Steve, always want to make sure and, and let folks know where they can keep up with everything social media-wise as well, my friend. Yeah, that's right. Well, the, the website is, is hackettsongs.com. Um, we do other things as well. We do Instagram and Facebook and uh, all the social media that, uh, that the presidents do when they're allowed to. And, uh, yeah, it's been a busy time. It's been, it's actually been really great, this lockdown, but uh, I'm looking forward to making it outside the front door again, of course. <laughs> there you go. Well, Steve, always great to visit with you, sir. I, I truly value your time, and uh, hopefully we get you up again real soon, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Cameron. Lovely talking to you. Our next guest, I've uh, got a book to talk about today, The Price You Pay for College, uh, an entirely new roadmap for the biggest financial decision your family will ever make. We've got Ron Lieber on the on the line with us today. And uh, first off, Ron, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to be on the show. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, now Ron, the, the, the when you talk about the price you pay for college, this is uh, of particular interest for me as well. I've got a uh, just turned sixteen year old. So, uh, what are maybe some of the, uh, the the misconceptions that folks have about that nest egg they've got to have? Well, one of the things that people have misconceptions about is whether the list price that these schools put on their websites is actually going to be the real price. So there may be a list price at your flagship state university there that, you know, looks like it's going to cost twenty or $25,000 a year all in, including tuition and fees and room and board and mandatory this, mandatory that. But the fact of the matter is, is that there are discounts available. There are discounts based on your need. There may be discounts based on the merit of your child, grades, test scores, other scholarships available. And then if you're looking at any private universities, then all bets are off. All sorts of discounting and scholarships and weird names for funky discounts are out there. And most people don't realize that that's how it works now. And where where do people, where, where is that information even available? That's, yeah, Ron, this is news to me. <laughs> So, so this is the thing, right? And this is why I wrote the book. So I spend my days at the New York Times writing about everything and anything under the sun that hits you in the wallet. And I really like tackling questions and problems that involve really tough decisions that consumers make that involve a lot of money and a lot of confusion where things are super complicated and there are a lot of feelings involved. So that just about sums up what we're dealing with here, right? We've got our kids. It's a six-figure amount of money, and everything's complicated. And so I kept hearing from people who didn't understand how this worked. And so I set out to explain it. And so there are basically two channels of, of discounts. There's the discount that's based on your financial need, right, which is basically about how much do you earn and how much do you have in assets. And then there are discounts based on what's come to be referred to as merit 
aid. And at some schools, merit aid only goes to the tippy-top students, the you know strong leaders with the great ACT score and a 4.0 GPA in high school. And then there are some universities, more and more of them, that essentially give everybody a trophy. It's like youth soccer all over again. And they're trying to make people feel good about the discounts, um, but everybody gets a little bit something different, right? So it's like getting on Southwest Airlines and you talk to the person next to you on either side and everybody paid something different. How hard is it to find the discounts that are that are out there or uh, that, that are kind of floating around that uh, nobody knows about? So it's not as easy as it could be. And, you know, I can give you a, a little bit of information here, but, you know, I also spend just chapters and chapters trying to break it down for people. So when we're thinking about need-based aid, by law, every school, public or private, needs to have something called a net price calculator on their website. Sometimes it's hard to find, so you may need to Google University of Tulsa net price calculator, and then it pops right up. You input all of your financial data, and it will tell you for sure what need-based aid you might be eligible for. So that's a pretty good predictive engine. Now, if you happen to be luckier than most and you earn way more than average, but you don't earn enough to go around writing full price checks to, you know, SMU or Colorado College or Tulane University, then you've got to go looking for the merit aid offers at each of those schools to see if your kid is a good enough student to qualify. Now, there may not be much information on their websites about it, um, but there's a uh, sort of semi-secret document that the schools make available, but they often hide it, uh, called the Common Data Set. It'll tell you, if your family doesn't have any financial need, it'll tell you what percentage of the freshmen each year did get some of that extra merit aid goodies, um, even though uh, their parents may be particularly flush. So it's a little complicated. And, and and obviously there is all kinds of information about out there and and there's folks that are always looking to take advantage of folks looking for the breaks as well. Uh, can, can you t- can you speak to that as well? Sure. Um, so, you know, there are some places where you can go to kind of get educated for free by people who are not looking to take advantage of you. When I was getting started with this reporting project, I spent a lot of time, and I still do, in a Facebook group called Pain for College 101. And it's a bunch of parents who have all learned a ton about this system and learned it from the parents who came before them and are now kind of throwing the rope back. That's a pretty safe space to hang out. Nobody's selling services there. It's all just parents um, helping one another out. So it's a great place to get a trustworthy tutorial. But you're right to ask because there are all sorts of you know, scammy scholarship services that are out there that claim that, you know, if you pay them 199 bucks, they guarantee to find you $10,000 that would otherwise go you know, for not. And um, quite often those services do not amount um, to anything and there's no good way to get your money back. So I would be careful with those. Now, what are some of the other things that folks need to, to be mindful? Like I said, we've we, we've got a 16 year old, so we've got a couple of years to prepare. How how soon do you do you get started on that as well? I mean, I think 16 is about the time you want to start asking some questions. And let me just give you one that may sound philosophical, but it's actually quite practical. Right. What is college anyway? Right. What is the point of the exercise? What is the definition of success for you and your family? And how much is enough? Uh, I wasn't sure that anybody was asking the question in that way. So when I went running around America doing laps for years trying to figure out how to put this book together, 
I kept asking that question stubbornly over and over. And I always heard, you know, basically three different answers to it. People go to college for the education. They go to college for the kinship, right? To find their people, uh, the, the fraternity brothers, sorority sisters going to carry them through life, the mentors, the grownups, the professors, the advisors, um, who will, you know, sort of grab them by the scruff of the neck and, and drag them if necessary to bigger and better things. Uh, and then there's the credential. Right. Maybe you're a, uh, maybe your family who, you know, with parents didn't go to college and you, your kid wants to take his or her shot. And what you really hope is that that kid gets a credential that can help um, them grab a hold of that middle class rung on the socioeconomic class ladder and stay there. Right. With a teaching certificate or an accounting degree uh, or a BSN in nursing, uh, you know, sort of recession proof jobs or something close to it. Or maybe you're grabbing for that brass ring, right? Maybe you went to the state university or the community college, and you've got this lights-out student. All he or she wants to do is, you know, go to the north and, and you know, go to, go to Northwestern University or go to Cornell in New York, right? And that's a credential that can open doors to the kinds of places that your family might never have had access to. Right. So what is that worth paying for? Well, that might be worth paying more than the fifteen or twenty thousand dollars a year that it would cost you to go to the state university. So much depends on your definition of college and what it is that you and your family and your kid especially hopes to get out of it. And and when you got started on this, did you did you think the process of of learning and uh, and adjusting your learning would have would have taken the the length of time that it has? Um, I wasn't sure. So here's the issue, right? I've got this thing down at the New York Times. It keeps me pretty busy. And they let us take book leaves, but, you know, they're not so crazy about us just doing it for years at a time, which is, you know, their prerogative, right? So it's kind of hard to get something this length done. And I wanted it to be comprehensive, right? I wanted to be able to pull the curtain back and explain to people who pays what and why how the system works. I wanted the books to be emotionally intelligent, to help people be honest with themselves about the, the fear, or the guilt, or the snobbery, or the elitism that, that comes from this process. I wanted people to know what might be worth paying extra for uh, at, a you know, say, a private university over a public one, and I wanted to lay all these things out with a lot of research. I wanted to give people the hacks and the tricks, and you know, I wanted to give them some good financial planning advice. So that's a lot of stuff. I, I knew about some of that stuff from my work at the Times, but I had a lot to learn before I could be the teacher. There you go. Now, now, Ron, as as we've gone through what uh, what 2020 has been, I mean, obviously, it makes it that much more pressing on uh, on everybody's bottom line as well, right? Sure. I mean, what a mess, right? On one hand, you've got, um, I mean, how best to put this, right? Let, let's look at what's happened to uh, to the labor force, right? We've got a whole bunch of people who have managed to keep their jobs. And those folks may be doing better than they were a year ago because they're probably spending less money, right? Maybe they're not commuting or they're not buying as many clothes. They're not going out to eat as much. Um, but then we've got a segment of the population, a, a minority of the population, that's hurting really badly, right? And those folks, um, you know, those folks, their income may have gone to zero and they've got a lot of you know, pretty difficult financial aid applications and, and appeals to make to schools if, if they're in the application mix. But then we've got the schools, right? And the, the schools are struggling in all sorts of ways uh, to try to keep uh, faculty safe, to try to keep students safe. And the thing about that is that 
the residential undergraduate experience on these college campuses now, to the extent that they're open, is nothing like normal. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, am I really going to pay full price for this right now? Because the schools are charging full price. Uh, if I'm a parent right now, you know, my daughter's 15, so you know, hopefully all the teenagers will have needles in their arms by the time it's, it's, it's her time, right? Hopefully we'll have all the kids vaccinated in a couple of years. Um, but right now, I don't know that I'd be, you know, uh, uh, sending $20,000 a year at the University of Oklahoma. I certainly wouldn't be spending $75,000 a year at Northwestern. And and for, for, for folks that... Uh... Moving forward for college as of as a result of 2020, you talked about the uh, the in-person learning being kind of changed. That Do you think moving forward that that that, that is going to have an, a, a major effect on colleges and, and the way they do things moving forward? I'm not sure it will, because the funny thing that happened this past fall was that students came flocking back, right, almost against all reason, because uh, so many of them ended up getting sick this fall, uh, you know, before the schools turned the screws some. And, I mean, here's what we learned about that, right? This, this, this notion of the, the residential undergraduate experience is something that has come to be or feel like a sort of rite of passage for the middle class and above. It's just this thing that you do now, right? And when that was stripped away, people weren't super anxious to reinvent the whole thing and do it some other way. They wanted to go back, right? They missed it. They, they'd been waiting for it their entire teenage, you know, their entire careers as teenagers. And all they wanted to do, even in a compromised situation, even when it was still, uh, you know, at, at full price, all they wanted to do was go get it. So how much are things really going to change? I don't know that they will. I, I'm not sure they will. All right. Well, Ron, again, the, uh, the the book, The Price You Pay for College, I, I want to make sure and let folks know where they can find more information, where they can purchase the book, and then again, keep up with everything else you got going on social media-wise as well. Thank you very much. Uh, you can buy The Price You Pay for College uh, anywhere books are sold. That includes electronic versions, uh, audio versions on all the platforms you use. I read and recorded the book myself over three days in the audio studio. So I'm proud of that one. And you can find me at ronlieber.com and on Twitter and Instagram at ronlieber. All right. Well, Ron, thank you so much for your insight this morning. I, I think I've got some things, some notes taken that might help me out over the next couple of years. Appreciate your time. Hope you have a great rest of your week and we can catch up again real soon, sir. Thank you very much. Our last guest here on the podcast today, Dave Herrera, country singer, songwriter. We've been playing a, a few of his songs. And uh, first off, Dave, I think this is the first time in, in, in only 2020, 2021 fashion. This is the first time we met face to face. This is absolutely the first time, and I appreciate it. It's nice to meet you. I'm yeah, excited. Well, Dave, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, about you, about uh, where the music started for you in the first place. I'm just a simple guy from California, born and raised. Not much to it. Uh, I, I started working on music with a buddy of mine in his room a long time ago. He would he would make music uh, with his computer recording, his guitars. He'd use drum sounds, bongos, whatever he could. And he would take those samples and, and convert that into audio wave files. And then I'd come over and I'd start laying ad libs and vocals and getting creative with uh, putting my part 
to his part and trying to vibe with some sort of flavor. And, um, and then I was like, you know what, this is addicting. <laughs> so I took that and I, I got myself like a drum machine and, and started playing my guitar parts and making samples and, and creating songs myself. Um, and that was, that was in the early parts of high school. And ever since then, I've always had some sort of recording devices at my house, uh, whether it's uh, external uh, sound cards or MBC, MPC drum machines or guitars or um, drums or uh, some fashion of a keyboard of some type. So it's just one of those things that's always stuck with me. Now, what is, what is your instrument of choice? Honestly, uh, it's going to be writing. <laughs> the <laughs> yeah, pencil. Uh, it's going to be yeah, writing and then uh, coming up with some basic chords and stuff. But um, I've been writing with the co-writer of mine, Corey uh, Copen, um, and he, he, he's, he and I will vibe out with chords. He, he's much better than I am on the guitar. Um, so, uh, but uh, I, would say, I would say writing is my favorite part. I could take what's up here and, and, and dump it onto paper and then, and then try to come up with some chords and some melodic uh, flavor on that. But um, I, I like, I like just dabbling with uh, drum machines, keyboards, and, and, and coming up with general ideas um, and then leaving it up to the professionals to lay their, the real, the real drum tracks down. <laughs> and the guys that have been playing guitars their entire life that just have some special flavor to it. So now I, I've got to wonder: Is the, are you a world traveler? Are you a traveler by uh, by uh, wish? Do you do you like to travel? Just because last song was Hollywood sign, this one visiting Nashville. I mean, you, are, are you always on the road? Are, are you ever at home? No, this is the thing. <laughs> I'm a homebody. And when I get out, I get so excited. It's a new thing for me. And it's like Christmas, right? It's a special surprise moment. I'm like, whoa, what's that? Whoa, what's that? What's this? It's just little things in life get me really excited. And so going down to Hollywood and just being in that moment, like, wow, there's so much that goes on here. And I've seen this since I was, I can watch television, right? Things just happen in Hollywood and, and hearing about Nashville and all the fun things that happened in Nashville, Johnny Cash and just all the history of Loretta Lynn and just everything that goes on the Grand Ole Opry. So I've always wanted to go there. My wife and I traveled there for the first time, September of uh, 2019. And it's just, that, that, that's why I think I enjoy writing about these things because I get so excited. It gives that little spark inside of me. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, what was what was Nashville as opposed to what you had envisioned when you went the first time? Okay, when I and I'm just laying it out there, being honest. When I when I thought uh, thought about going to Nashville, I thought it was going to be like um, wood wooden type of sidewalks. You know, what I mean, country style right. wood platform sidewalks that you would see in like old historic towns with a lot of people wearing like big belt buckles, Wranglers, <laughs> cowboy boots and cowboy hats. And that's exactly how I envisioned it. When I got there, it, I mean, it's a very fast paced downtown, lots of people. And it seemed like demographics and culture from all over the world. And, and I, I was just shocked. I was like, wow, this is completely opposite well, it tightened what I was thinking, but with more of a modern component. And that was so cool about it. I was like, this is what I envisioned was this old school, like country cowboy town. But it was that times like 1000. Yeah. It's, um, it's you can just be yourself. That Yeah. I felt like you could be yourself. You could wear you could wear a sweatshirt. You could wear uh, your nice T-shirt, your jeans. You could dress up like everything was welcomed. 
I, I remember the first time I went to Nashville, this is about eight years ago, and I was so excited to go downtown. It was during CMA Fest, and I was walking down Broadway, and I heard this guy playing the guitar and singing. I was like, wow, I wonder who that is, and I, and I kept getting closer, kept getting closer. It was just a dude with his guitar out, singing between a couple of buildings in an alley, had his guitar case open for tips, and I was like, that was the best dude I've ever heard sing in my life, and he's singing in the alleyway. I'm absolutely with you. Like when you hear these musicians, you're and you could just like if you hear them off in a distance or you're there looking a different direction and you don't actually see who's singing, it sounds like somebody that's on the radio <laughs> or somebody that you've heard and you're very familiar with. I agree, they're so talented. Now, did did that inspire you to to write more? What were what was the what was the end result of that that first trip? There were a lot of things, a lot of emotions had come come in mind just by visiting the, the Ryman Theater and everything, uh, the Grand Ole Opry, just a, a lot of the venues and other things going on down there. It, it was an inspiration. First of all, it was a reality check. Like these these other musicians that are out there are bad to the bone. I mean, I, I honestly, like you think to yourself, like, oh, I could write these songs. I can do these songs with these people are so talented and it's a reality check. I'm like, man, I, I, I can't be that good. There's no way. Um, so I'm just going to strive to make myself better and, and and just try to get more creative and continue writing. And that's how I felt uh, after after leaving. Now, what was uh, what was 2020? What was that hurdle like for uh, for a younger musician as well? You know, um, well, OK, so I released my first single, Hollywood Sign, September 4th. So I don't have a lot of experience with releasing music prior to the covid. So I think it, it might be. It might be uh, that might be better for me looking forward because <laughs> if this is as bad as it can get, it can only be better, right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Now, now, how how have you adjusted your your mindset, maybe your goal set uh, mentally moving forward into twenty twenty one? Well, I've been learning a lot. I can tell you that much, uh, and and it is a total grind. Um, making the music, creating it is is it's so much fun. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's amazing. And at the time before getting into the marketing and the business side of it, music, like when you're writing it and you're getting all these emotions involved, it's like, Oh, this is so much work and it's, it's stressful on you. But now getting into the business side of it, I'm like, Oh man, uh, writing is easy. It's like going to Disneyland. <laughs> so I think preparing going forward is uh, continuing to write about um, experiences and, 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 uh, and, and just, keeping in mind, I got to be myself, be authentic, but at the same time, focus on uh, the, the, the business side of it too. But I know that you have to dump a lot into that. So I'm just, I'm, I'm learning, learning that side of it. And I'm going to, I'm going to try to balance and keep the creative side going while at the same time business, but try not to let that influence it right. in some way. Right. So now, what was the, interesting? Yeah. What was what was your biggest uh, pandemic uh, purchase? What was the biggest 2020 only purchase? Something you would have never bought coming in? Yeah. Um, let's see. Pro- probably a PR firm. <laughs> 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 I would have never done it. I, <laughs> I consider that a purchase, but it's a great investment. Thanks, Christy. <laughs> That's good stuff. Now, now the, uh, the the new single actually available tomorrow. Is that right? It's a, visiting Nashville is available tomorrow. Uh, the, the the single will be out on uh, digital uh, platforms for you to download, stream, whatever, listen to. 
I believe it's free. Some platforms might be charge you for it if you're not a member or something. Then we have the music video coming out tomorrow. Um, so we're excited about that. Today, we have the first episode. I think it's coming out at uh, 6 p.m. Pacific time, 8 p.m. Central time. It's called The Shit Show All Rubies Wanted. The trailer's out now, but the first episode will come out um, at, at yeah 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So check that out. It'll be on YouTube as well. So it'll give you something to look forward to uh, this evening and some some uh, new music coming out tomorrow. So hopefully you enjoy it. All right. And uh, now, now, Dave, the, uh, the the new music, where if, if folks obviously find it anywhere streaming wise, but as far as social media, where's the where's the best place to keep up? You can check out Instagram at Dave Herrera Live. That's Dave H E R R E R A Live L I V E. So Dave Herrera Live at Instagram. Facebook is Dave Herrera Music. That's my personal page, and then I've got Dave Herrera Live for the uh, the music music page. And then simple for the uh, website, you can check us out at DaveHerreraLive.com. <laughs> Try to keep it simple. <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, the, the the new single coming tomorrow. Do do you? Are you able to sleep the night before anticipation uh, on the numbers, any of that stuff? Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> that's where the business side comes in. It's, it is stressful. <laughs> and I try to calm myself down. And I'm like, calm down, calm down. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, it's, it, I'm just one of those type of personalities that's always nervous, always overthinking things, always getting too emotionally attached to things. And I think that's why I enjoy music so much because I can take those emotions and feelings and dump them into the, uh, the songs themselves. But yeah, it's a, a nervous feeling that it's coming out tomorrow and we'll see what type of traction we get, what type of demographics are looking at this one uh, versus uh, the first single Hollywood sign. Since we've had uh, so much time to ourselves, what, uh, what is the, the, the one thing that you've really focused on is may, is it songwriting, vocals, uh, instrumentation? What's, what's been the main focus this past year? Yeah, it's, it's really, um, cranking out the songs, just, just writing the songs, uh, getting together with the guys when we can, um, in the studio. And there's been a few occasions when we were on complete lockdown that we couldn't get to the studio. Um, and I would, I would send them off to, um, uh, a gentleman in Nashville that I work with Jeff Balding and he, his guys, a lot of the people he worked with works with, um, have, uh, their own studio set up. So the drummer will have their own studio, et cetera. So it helped, helped expedite some of the songs. So we didn't lose any ground or traction when uh, putting these things together. So we're, I'm just trying to build up as much as I can so we can go through it and release uh, one single at a time and until we feel comfortable enough to maybe do an EP or something. But it's a lot of work to build a fan base. It's not easy. It's probably the most <laughs> difficult thing I've ever been faced with. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, again, uh, Dave Herrera live pretty much everywhere. <laughs> pretty much that's pretty it much. yeah try to keep it simple <laughs> there you go well dave it's been great to visit with you today uh check out the podcast uh you said t- tonight eight o'clock central time six o'clock pacific is that correct correct uh correct it's gonna be the docuseries the first episode to the docuseries and to be honest with you i haven't even seen the final version um <laughs> uh, sean lupton who's who who shot it with his crew and he's also a buddy of mine is still doing some edits today trying to get it wrapped up. So hopefully you guys find it interesting because we've we've put a lot of time and effort into the docuseries to try to make it fun and to allow people to get to know me, my family and friends. Um, We are a bit crazy and chaotic. And most people I know are are the same way Uh, because life's not easy. It's difficult. And uh, we just try to make make a light of it and have a good time. 
There you go. Well, uh, check that out as well. Dave, it's been uh, great to get to meet you a little bit, and uh, hopefully we can catch up again real soon, my friend. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. You have a good day. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Good Questions with Cameron Dole. If you ever have a comment, question, or anything else you'd like to know, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at GQ with Cam. If you'd like to help out in the funding for this podcast, feel free to click the support tab and follow the instructions. If you have a special guest idea, you can email me, gqwithcam at gmail.com. Again, thanks so much to Brandon Allen for coming up with our tune for Good Questions with Cameron Dole. We're going to let him play us out. Hope you guys have a great rest of your Thursday. Episode 16 coming up tomorrow. Tomorrow.